Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teams from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. episode six of the principles of performance podcast and we need to get this show started because if not the three of us were going to bs off air for hours on end before we finally got it started uh it is myself your host eric Tagati, along with my co-host mr michael perry and a special guest who's a, a great friend who as i said we could bs and, and, and laugh and have some great times with uh uh, all day long, uh, Dr. Anthony Batiste, and he is going to join us. And we're talking about kind of a team approach to fitness and rehab. Mike and I being on the fitness end of things, and Anthony kind of holding a foot on, on each side of that that border and, and kind of doing both. So, kind of tell us about what that's like. Yeah, well, thank you, Eric. And yeah, it's uh, it could be something that we would just laugh for the next hour and a half. Uh, it's by far. <laughs> always a treat to see you guys since I don't get to see you in person as much. Um, so am I going to be like this little head in the cloud? Are you going to like make us, so am I a co-host? Like what's the deal here? Like you, you can do it. You, you, just, you be you, you be you. Yeah, just, I, you, you know, you don't pin the screen. You just keep me in the corner up there in the, in the zoom world, but whatever. So uh, as Eric said, I'm a physical therapist, but I also have a performance coaching history and background in the strength and conditioning world. So I'm lucky enough to kind of live in both worlds and, and really, you know, when Eric called me uh, to talk about this, that was one of the things we wanted to address is there's a lot of us that are kind of in that world that aren't really in that world. And there's a lot of us that are in that world that shouldn't be in that world. And I think we'll kind of hash out our thoughts and, and from what we've seen over years and years and years in the field of what that means and what it doesn't mean or what it should mean and what it shouldn't mean. So uh, I'm lucky enough, I don't know, but my background, I'll give it real quick. So at the Quinnipiac University Physical Therapy, School graduated uh, way back years ago. Our 20th reunion is coming up for undergrad. So that gives you an idea how old I am, unfortunately, but I look better than these two guys. And in, in uh, my senior year of college, I took my uh, CSCS test. So we had, you had an exemption as a senior in college to take that. Uh, and I got into personal training and fitness. So to me, I worked in a clinic for two plus two and a half years before I even went to PT school. And I saw the kind of the concepts that they had in the clinic. I was like, that's not how really to get somebody back to where they need to be if they want to run a marathon or play sport or, you know, other than everyday life. And that's what, you know, physical therapy clinics are geared for in general rehab, we can call it. And we'll talk about the definition of those because I, I, those definitions kind of are tough, right? So I take that class. I finish PT school. Uh, I'm out working in a clinic and I'm trying to apply some of the principles across the board. And I got frustrated. And I couldn't understand why the, um, you know, why I had a protocol base and I had a clinic, I had a person that had a labor repair and I had 10 of them. And if I follow this protocol by the same surgeon that six of them do really well, two of them do okay, two of them are, I'm sorry, six, two, eight, I don't do math well. Uh, and, you know, one, one of them, fingers. one of them will be hard. a test at the end, folks. Right. One of them does really poorly and the other one it is it has just struggles, right? So, you know, back then we always used to say, oh, well, you're a surgeon better than the other one. And, and those are bad excuses and those were on us. Like I take full responsibility for, for that. What I didn't have was a system to figure out how to look at a person not as a label repair. And, and that's what we're taught in school, unfortunately. And, and it's changed now from back then. Go into that if we want to late. But I had read Athletic Body and Balance by Gray in college. I didn't understand it. I couldn't figure out how that worked with the programming aspect of what I kind of understood. And, you know, I, I went away for, for a while and then came back to it. And that was when I met Eric. 
sometime, I don't know, 12, 13 plus years ago. And he was uh, working with William Gray as an assistant, took the FMS that kind of opened my eyes to how to use it and how to bucket people. And then what I mean by bucket them is you look at how their system works and I say, well, I need to program this person. They have these attributes and this is a problem. How do I get the problem better, but still make them really good at what they do, right? So from there, they, the, the SFMA was starting to grow and that was kind of the medical model and I jumped right into that. So I've been part of the FMS family now for the better part of 12 or so years. So uh, time at these guys and, and basically what that's done for me is it's helped me compartmentalize when someone comes to me that's injured, that's a performance, whatever it may be, you could be a, uh, an, an accountant athlete I have to know what your needs are and how to get you out of the injury that you came to see me for, or I need to get you back into the performance level of you need to go into work and sit in front of the computer for X amount of times a day. And you want to go to the gym twice a week and you want to mountain bike. So kind of having information and knowing a lot of that stuff is really important to treat people across the spectrum as a whole. I think that's what you're asking. Is that possible, Eric? Did I miss that? Yeah, I just... No, no, I nailed it. And so, kind of picking up from there is um, a conversation I had actually yesterday with, with a high school athlete. And he, he just had uh, a hip labral repair in the off season. And he's nervous because he's starting to feel in his hip a little bit um, as practice is starting. But as if anybody who's been around high school sports know that first week of practice is head coach's chance to get the, the whip and chair out. And they went from no practice basically for the last two weeks to uh, three and a half hour practice in the morning, two and a half hour practice in the afternoon. And I said, you know, we've done all this work and you walked, you know, out of here last week with full movement competency, meaning you were pain-free, you could do all the things you need to do. So it's not a competency issue. It's not that you're broken. It's that you just don't have the capacity to handle that. And quite frankly, you know, a lot of people don't. That's why your training room is full. And what I try to explain to him is that it's not black and white. And the analogy I gave is when I work with the Giants, you had guys who on, on, on the, the one side of things would, would, let's say that's black, where you're completely shut down, torn ACL, you know, just came out of surgery, you're doing nothing but getting treatment. And then white would be completely clear, no restrictions whatsoever. You could do everything that the coaches are asking you to do, which nobody in the NFL is in that category, right? So I had a room full of people that were kind of in the gray area. They weren't hurt enough that they wanted to go in the training room and have that affect their contract and playing time and so forth, but they weren't really healthy enough to do everything the coaches were asking them to do. So we had to manage that gray area and their shades of that gray. So that's where someone like myself and then having a, a therapist that are clinician like yourself that we can work back and forth is managing that gray area is really an art and, it, and it's a tricky thing to handle. Agreed completely. Uh, is there a question there, or are you just kind of on the soapbox? I just I don't know. Perry, can you, you you spend more time with him than I do? Can you? <laughs> Dude, I don't even know. I just black I just blacked out for three days, <laughs> so I, I'm not even know. I all I I was just thinking of cannolis and and when anyways. No, yeah. yeah. yeah so, I, I mean, actually, to, for to be honest, that was kind of like a like a statement versus a question. But uh, I'll, I'll fill do. in. I'll fill in. Um, so uh, you know, I think the gray area is simply that continuum from bridging the gap from true rehabilitation into performance and i think if we as strength and conditioning coaches could start to learn more about the physical therapy process and then physical therapists could start to learn more about strength training and and meet in the middle that's where the continuum happens but unfortunately a lot of the time it becomes a contest to see who knows more or you know it's an ego-driven scenario so you know for us i think we need to we need to team up and, and remember that the goal is to get the athlete back to wherever they need to be. It's not about who gets the credit, but in a world of, you know, social media and, and, you know, what we do, we have a bunch of egos and everybody wants to show how smart they are. But at the end of the day, the only result that really matters is our, our patients and our clients and our athletes. I agree more. So I actually, as my schedule busy as it is, I actually just jumped on to be the assistant varsity men's soccer coach down here at Wildwood Catholic. So I totally understand the scenario you're bringing up, Eric. And this is something that I run into, not just with my high school athlete uh, population, not just with my college athlete population, but with my everyday people population. I think the key part and the question I've started to ask people is someone comes to me and says, hey, my back hurts. And then we get them out of back pain. They go, I want to go golf. 
all right, like that's that there's two things are, are, are miles apart right now. And, and I think to Eric, to your point is, you have all of the baseline mo uh, movement, stability, control, strength. And, you know, the key word there is you don't have the capacity because the demand outweighed the ability, right? We need to kind of bring those two things a little bit more in line. So at that point, it would be drop the demand on the training capacity football side and bring up the demand in the strength conditioning world of, you know, getting him to run uh, X amount more and, and still building that tolerance, right? So that's the game. And, and the way I started to phrase it with people is, what did you do to prepare to be able to golf? And they just look at me and they don't get it. And I said, you know, you told me you haven't done anything for four months and now you're back hurt. And now we've done this kind of treatment and I have, you know, in, and with my treatments, you, you both know this, but for the audience, you know, I incorporate as much as I can of training conditioning into those treatments. Right. But I, I only have a little bit of time to be able to manually treat, fix, you know, go through all that, you know, whole thing. But when I ask them that question, it changes their mindset. They say, well, what did you do to prepare for this? Like, dude, you can't just go out and swing a golf club 300 times and expect to be okay. You didn't do any cardiovascular, you didn't do any strength training for it, you didn't do any mobility training for it, and now you just want to go play golf and don't expect that your back or your knee or whatever is going to hurt. So the conversation, I think, has to be kind of turned a little bit into the, what did you do to prepare to do, for, to do that? You know, that could be something as simple as, hey, I couldn't unload the bags of mulch from my car. Like, well, yeah, you've been inactive for however long, and then you went and did, you know, moved two tons of dirt in your driveway. Like, what did you think was going to happen? So the hard part, you know, going back, circling back to Eric's scenario, is how do I communicate that to a high school coach who is going to tell me, like, uh, I'm coaching football, he needs to play football. That becomes the issue that I don't have a lot of great answers to, toward. For my scenario right now, we just did two weeks of conditioning and head coach, I just sent him uh, a bunch of blurbs. So I broke down based on talking to some of my friends in the MLS world, uh, you know, broke down, hey, what do you guys run your templates at? So they base everything off a mile and a half. I said, all right, cool. So then we could break that off a mile and a half and then we can break it into hundred yards. So in 100 yards, if the kids get between, you know, I gave them a, a lofty goal of, uh, you know, you figure Olympic champ at 100 meters runs, you know, a 10 flat, whatever. So I would say like 14 to 16 seconds was a goal I would give the kids. I'd say, I need you guys at the end to run to be done in 14, 16 seconds. I'll accept 18, 19, right? They're not Olympic athletes. Walk back, hit that again. So now I broke those 100 yards up into 20 they had to do that 24 times to break the mile and a half and breaking that in meters but that's given them enough rest to get back while they're walking back it's still hitting the mark and it's still not killing these kids as opposed to when i played and this goes right to your point eric you get out there and it's we're go time and it was our first day of practice was varsity practice was no ball we had a almost four mile run around a lake and the coach said all right it's uh this time and everyone needs to be back here in under 28 minutes. And if you're not back in under 20 minutes, you run it every day until you do. Yeah. And then you wonder why kids are hurt, right? So then the other question with that becomes, now your job is, are you seeing that kid to get his fitness up or are you now triaging him as part medical, part fitness? That's the bigger problem that we're gonna run into. Does that make well, sense? And, and, and that leads to, you know, like we had to figure out, and I literally had two different doors in my facility. One was where we, we subleased space to physical therapy. And then the, uh, the front door is where we came in for fitness. So sometimes you came in for fitness and we discovered by doing a movement screen that, you know what, you really need to be a patient because it hurts for you to just extend back and reach overhead. That shouldn't hurt. And so you need to be a patient to figure out what's causing that. Is that a medical issue? Is that a musculoskeletal issue? What's going on? And so I need to send it back to you. Now, other times people came in for PT and they could put them through the top tier of an SFMA and be completely clear, say, you know what, you're just dysfunctional. You just don't have any, you know, movement competence or capacity. There's nothing here that necessarily needs treatment. Um, so you may be more of a client than you are a patient, or sometimes you need to be both. And, and trying to, to figure out what's what is something I think we're not very good at in our industry. So, you know, 
you need to have some systems and guidelines. So what kind of qualifies someone if I'm working with them and you were standing there watching to say, you know what, this, this guy needs to be a patient too. Yeah. So if we define, you know, if we define fitness, we start looking at it as, you know, if you looked it up, it says the condition of being physically fit. I don't even know what that means. Right? Like, That's as unclear as my statement. It does, well, correct. In the form of what you thought was a question is even better. Yeah, perfect. But then if you look at rehab, rehab is defined of kind of restoring, uh, bringing back together. So for me, when you look at those, rehab's got a, a little bit more of a, a concrete definition, right? So if you, you know, our, our line, what we, we like to say is, is pain. If, if you're in pain, you're a patient, like off the top. So does that mean that you are not able to be fit? No, that's not what it means at all. So being a rehab patient does not mean you can still be fit. Being a fitness client, again, I don't know what that means. So if you say someone's cardiovascularly fit, but they're well beyond the strength metrics, I don't think they're fit. So then, you know, they need the fitness end of strengthening. If someone is really strong and their cardio sucks, then they need the fitness end of cardio. If what supersedes as if any of them are hurt, but being hurt doesn't necessarily mean you can't be fit. What do I mean by that? So uh, hurt shoulder, right? The baseball player, hurt right shoulder, uh, taking some time off from throwing. So now in my mind, they're a rehab patient for the shoulder. So what am I doing to see them? I go through, my outline is I take the SFMA. That is my assessment, right? We, we get a lot of flack in, in a world of people that are dogmatic. I am a blank guy. I follow blank stuff. I follow this doctrine. I use SFMA as a assessment tool, period. So that gives me a total body look at that person's almost every movement pattern and then when I break that down, that gives me a look at what the rest of their system's doing. So that right shoulder pain could be because of a tissue sling into their left hip that I found because they can't rotate their hip or flex it. So in order for me to fix the shoulder, I need to flex the, fix the hip, right? And that's kind of the way I use the system. What I do as a treatment approach is maybe a mulligan mode, which may be an ART mode, maybe a dry needle. So the SFMA is not my treatment. That is my assessment period. I use, then I become whatever guy you need me to be. If you have a shoulder problem, I'm a shoulder guy. If you have a shoulder joint problem, I'm a shoulder joint guy, right? Like those are different. If I'm a shoulder, if you have a tissue problem, then I'm a shoulder tissue guy, period. So once I get that tissue piece done, the problem that I have is now I send that athlete back to go play, but they can do some of the, you know, conditioning and all the other stuff as the fitness model. And that's the way it should be. We just can't have them throw yet. Right. So I think if you're a rehab patient, you could get really fit in a bunch of different ways. Right. I mean, that right shoulder may not be the one that, that Perry that you, you know, press and grind and, and windmill, but you sure as hell could do it with the left and you sure as hell, if it feels comfortable, kettlebell swinging with that arm pack, because that teaches shoulder pack. Right. So I think more of that, more of that crossover needs to happen. And in a facility, Eric, that you mentioned has both of those doors, that's golden because the way that should work is I eval that kid or person, whatever. I go in, do my treatment. My treatment's over. I, they walk right across the hall. I look at the program and I go cross that out, cross that out, cross that out add this quadruped, just stabilization work for the shoulder, have them do prone on elbow reaching and do a kettlebell arm bar and add those in on the two supersets and then make that kid or person as fit as possible. And I don't know if that's a, 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 something that's just missed in the general population of fitness and medical professionals. I don't know if it's, I can do that. So I'm not gonna send that out. I just, I see a lot of different rationales for why that doesn't happen more. And I, I don't think any of them are real valid if you really make the effort. 
So I would totally agree with that. And then I'm going to throw one back at you as someone who's an SFMA, SFMA instructor. Um, something that throws me on the fitness side is, you know, I'll talk to people and they'll say, you know, I don't really use the FMS. And I'm, I'm going to talk about like big name people that, that I've come across that uh, have said, you know, I don't really like the FMS, but I love doing the SFMA with all my people, but they're doing it on the fitness side right? They're coming in to, to, for fitness and performance and they're using the SFMA. And now here's the problem is if you put me through an SFMA, you're going to find that I fail probably, you know, eight to 10 tests easily. But if you put way me more through that, that, way more than that, yeah, yeah, well, I'm being conservative, <laughs> but, but with that, I could go through an FMS with no pain. I can, I have no ones on there. And, and so I would, if you didn't have that and, and so you end up having this, this confirmation bias, where if you look for, for these, little idiosyncrasies, you're going to find them. And now you're going to go down a rabbit hole of corrective exercises that may or may not really move the needle in terms of performance, right? I couldn't agree more. So a couple things with that. One is, you know, SFMA is going to give you a broader sense of what everything is doing. And if you have the time, that's great. That doesn't mean it has to be done. SFMA is also, the goal is not to be functional, non-painful. It's to be dysfunctional, non-painful in all the patterns to get you out of rehab, quote unquote, because we know pain changes the system and to get you back into that corrective model. That being said, if someone's looking at that and they're astute enough to be able to put together, hey, I have a bigger picture of a bigger, bigger recipe items. And now I can still figure out which of those ingredients I need to put in to cook dinner and which of the ingredients aren't going to make the dinner any better. I'm all for it. I couldn't be, I couldn't be more for it. Right. It's, it's the usage and it's not the system. I say this all the time. It's not the system error. It's the user error. And, and that just goes to the user and the user's knowledge and what's how they're going to apply information. So if that person is using that as a tool to give them an idea of how they're going to program, uh, whether it be mobility, whether it be uh, a full on exercise strength training, I think that's great as long as they apply it with the principles that they understand Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at something that I might not have caught in SFMA. Even their SF, if their FMS is still, you know, is a little asymmetric, hey, maybe that's what they need. They needed to take a deeper look at that. And if they don't have the hands-on skill set, they may be able to apply the corrective and change that. I think that's perfect. I you really I do. I think one of the reasons why we're seeing the SFMA come up in the fitness world more is because it's more complicated. And I think there's a lot of coaches that have been in the, the game for a long time and they think the FMS is too elementary for them and there's nothing that they can learn from the FMS. So what do they do? They go to something more advanced because that's what, that's what everybody wants to do. Like, oh, that's too simple. I'm ready for this. I'm ready for this. But they don't even understand the basic, uh, you know, the, the basic principles of, of how the sort of the FMS should work. And I think people assume because things are simple that they're not as nearly as effective as something that's complicated. We, we three of us had this conversation. I mean, this has been going on for however long. I mean, minimum effective dose is, is something that's gone by the wayside. That's another full topic we could talk about, right? Like, great, that's a, great idea. Holy, I mean, geez, has that gone by the wayside? But to, to your point, Mike, I, I think I don't know if it's complicated, I mean, it is the term, but I think it helps people possibly figure out how to localize the problem. Because if I look at a lunge pattern, I might have more variables than I know what to do with. And I think the big thing that SFMA does for healthcare is it guides people to look at this place. Mm -hmm. So if, if the fitness professional is using it to look at this place and it gives them an idea of, okay, if I add a banded mobilization to that and it changes that and then it changes that, then, it, then it's useful. If it's being used that way, I think it's fantastic. To Eric's point, if it's being used to where I'm just going to have more things and I go ahead and just start programming mobility, mobility, mobility because of their dysfunctional bindings, and I fail to look at how it's expressed at the upper echelon of neural functional patterning, which would be FMS, motor control screen, FCS in our world, in our language. I mean, there's tons of other stuff that we can name names of, but I think then it becomes problematic. And then you're, you're at that point to me, you're stepping over dollars to pick up pennies. So if you're the, the fitness professional, the trainer, strength coach sitting at home and you're saying, okay, well, 
I'm, I'm either hesitant to refer out to a physical therapist, chiropractor, what have you, because of either one, I don't want to look stupid in front of my client, right? I don't want to look like I don't have the answers. Or two, I'm afraid that if I send them there, they're not coming back. Um, how do we get that fear out of their mind? Because I, I refer out a ton of people without ever having that fear at all. But how do, how do you get to that point from the PT side? And then the second part of that question, Ann, is um, what makes a good referral? Like I always talk about it in the course to say, there's one thing to say, I'm sending over, um, you know, so-and-so with a poor shoulder. He, he go see Anthony's a nice guy versus I'm sending so-and-so over who has a painful impingement sign, but they're, they might actually be a little bit hypermobile. There's six on a biting scale. There are three on their FMS shoulder mobility and they're one on their push-up, and they're one on their rotary stability. That's a lot more clarified, higher quality referral. So the first part is how do we get comfortable referrals? And then two is how do we make the best referral? So two really good questions. The first part is really, I think a simple answer is, well, it's a two-part answer. It's one, create relationships, and two, vet them. Right, I mean, it's, it's, it's that simple. I, you know, if there's a, a crew opinion, and now with the internet and Instagram and all this stuff, you know, you go on a website and say, Hey, how do I find this person and, and something will come up, right? So, or if you're at these seminars, you know, which hopefully we're going to start going back live in general, this is another thing we can offshoot on internet learning, which is really destructive in the, in the medical world. Um, so when we start looking at that, that's part of the, the good thing about live courses. You start to make those relationships because the strength coaches that both of you are talking about that are using SBMA as part of their program are in that SMA course right and they're in there with me as a medical professional right so so you formulate that opinion and you start to talk to people and you start to learn hey there are people that have this concept that i don't have everyone's just in this big box gym that's there going through the motions because they were the biggest person there and they were the most fit looking and then they pick up clients so the forming relationships is huge if that means you go and do a search at a bunch of the gyms in your area and you kind of look and see which gym, which gym is doing what and you say hey let me reach out and go, hey look um you know over at this facility you know i know you're seeing a lot of athletes i'm looking for a place to send people when they're done with me i'm looking for something that if you need help how do we work together on this you know and then it becomes let's go grab a beer let's go have dinner let me see what your 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 brain's like let me kind of see what your thought process is like is it in sync with mine right and then it's, hey, I'm going to come spend a day at your clinic. Like, let me see you train today. Let me see what you're doing, right? And, you know, hey, why don't you come in and see what I'm doing? Come in for the day, you know, just two hours. Let me show you how we work in the facility, right? So that's the first piece, formulation. And then that, that falls into the second piece is vet them out. You know, there's the, I'm not an Instagram social media guy. And, you know, a lot of people get on me on that because that's the way we generate business and all that stuff. But there is so much fake stuff out there. People don't understand it. And it is bad. And it's hurting everybody that's doing it the right way. So vet them out, not over social media. Vet them out in the facility. Vet them out by seeing what they are. Hey, guess what? If you're a PT, you don't know everything about training. Go, hey, take me to a training session. What would you do with me if I was your client? Hey, why don't you, your shoulder hurts? Why don't you come in? I'll take a look at your shoulder and I'll tell you how I use it. It becomes very, very simple on the basic level, right? So I think those two things are the, the easiest way in my mind to, to, to get over that hurdle. Networking. It's just networking and making sure you're surrounding yourself with the right people. I mean, we had a, uh, we had a relationship with the hospital for five years where they were, they came in, they had a satellite clinic in our gym and, and COVID obviously disrupted that. But I mean, we were linked up with the hospital and that happened through a course. I met a PT when I was teaching an FMS course, they came down and boom, next thing you know, we're involved with the hospital. Um, that relationship has since ended and COVID was a big part of that. But now a PT clinic, full-blown PT clinic is coming in right next door to us. They just opened a, a hole in the wall to get next door. And the guy even reached out to me. He said, he's like, you know, I've heard about what you guys do and, you know, I just didn't want to interrupt any other sort of relationship that you had, but it looks like, you know, that relationship with that other hospital is not there. So do you want to team up? And it was great because we know a lot of the same people, we believe in the same things. And, um, he knew my reputation. I knew of his, and we, we started to share some, some, uh, some clients and things went well. Amazing how that works. 
So reputation meaning in the six block radius of where your facility is or like elsewhere? It's six blocks, seriously. Okay, yeah, I mean, it's not a figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, I mean, sure. it's- Just this making sure we're on the same page, yeah. No, right up the street, man. And, and so, hey. so, in all, so that's perfect, right? And a lot of times, and I'll, you know, this isn't me, obviously, but a lot of times what happens is, you know, when you get the education from PT school, it basically gets you out to be, to not kill anybody in the community. Then you start to get to learn under, it, it, it's true. It's, it's true, really, right? Then I've never heard it put that way, but it's, hey. It is, right? Then you get into the clinic and then you're following under people who you're following kind of their thing. And, and it's like, well, I don't like kettlebells. They shouldn't be in a PT clinic. Well, then you're an idiot, like period, right? So kettlebells are a stupid. lot of times, what's that? The kettlebells are stupid. Right. So a lot of times those PT clinics, even though they're next door, if they walk over, a lot of times they can be very intimidated by like, oh, no, 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 no. They use a lot of kettlebells over there. I don't know if that's right for us. I'm like, no, that's where you're wrong. That's better than the stupid rehab tool that you're using right now. Like, <laughs> let's call it what it is. You know, <laughs> like, so to have that relationship there is huge that someone's not scared off, that they're not kind of hesitant that, hey, there's a strength conditioning facility next door. And we want to kind of figure out how we can work a relationship ideal. And for, for you guys, it's also ideal of like, oh man, you're just walk over there, you know, but you're also gonna have to vet out the people who you're going to vet out. You know, you might have 10, 10 clinicians in there and you're going to find the two or three that align most with, with what's going on at your facility, who that get it. So that, you know, when, what the question, two questions for is someone walks over and says, Hey Mike, this is what I did. We're going to need you to get rid of these three things in the program and add these three and then go train lower extremity power, go train the cardiovascular fitness, go train that person like a beast because when the shoulder clears up, that'll be the only thing left. And then they can go back right to whatever sport they're playing, right? That's in an ideal world. So first of all, I think, I think you are the, the absolute best person to give the commencement speech at your PT school's next graduation. Say congratulations <laughs> on $120,000 of debt and the fact that you you know, no, not to kill hundred. Yeah, not now. You know, not to, not to kill anybody. It's it's, um, it's basically that line from Goodwill Hunting. You just spent two hundred and fifty grand on you know listen, could have listen. done in late fees at your local public library. Listen, that's not that's not totally the case, right? I mean, I went to a, a very 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 good very good PT school, right? And you know, it made it, it it makes it takes away from what it is, and by by no means is PT school easy, but we're not taught a lot of things in school and schools to get you through. And let's be realistic. If your school has a fail rate that's higher than other school, they use that as a marketing tool. So you're they're getting you through to pass the exam and they're getting you out to the workload, period. Now there are other schools, Quinnipiac being one of them, that was amazing. And we got a lot of different education on that. A lot of the schools are changing now because of things like um, FMS, SFMA, you know, we're, we're ingrained in some of the communities. There are other, uh, you know, there are other techniques and systems that are out there that are being taught. And, and those systems and techniques are great because they're actually telling people to look a little bit differently than the granular approach. And the granular approach is not working. The granular approach, it's just simply not working. Like we're not having less Tommy Johns. We're not having less ACL tears. We're not like, it's just not happening. There's not less low back pain, right? So there's a bigger picture there. And if no one wants to admit that, maybe, you know, that's their problem, but that's the reality of the landscape of what we're in for sure. All right. So let's shift gears. Let's talk about in the, in the athletic team setting. And, and I know that you're a consultant for a bunch of different pro teams, Anthony, over the years and the house decisions get made. And then we'll talk about how that trickles down to, you know, what I've seen, you know, the NFL level all the way down to the high school level and someone has to make decisions and, and there's, there's models that are, I know are now starting to be accepted. And, and a lot of this is driven from the work of people like Greg Rose, who, who kind of created this concept in TPI that's now carried over to on base and rapid fit of, of, we got to know what bucket to put you in. And that's kind of where you have these performance directors and people who can now say, all right, well, you're a medical problem or you're a skill problem, or you're a fitness problem, or maybe you're a little bit all of the above, and how do we communicate that across teams? And then that just gets trickled down to where, you know, maybe we don't have a, 
uh, a sports psych person and a, and a, and a strength and conditioning coach and athletic trainer and a, and, a, and a PT and all these things and an infielder coach at the high school level, because you have one, one guy that may cover four of those different things. But if we kind of take it from the highest level up, how much is it that getting that type of mindset getting used? And then talk about real life of what you're seeing at the high school level. Ooh, uh, so oddly enough, I was just sitting with uh, a performance, an NHL performance director and uh, NBA performance director two days ago and had a very similar talk. And I just got off the phone with uh, another person about a, a position in, in, in that world, right? So at the very highest level, most people think it's done at the highest level and it's not. And <laughs> I'm being honest, right? They bring in somebody to oversee all this. They're running and chasing all these, you know, great metrics and all those data. And then in three to five years, they're doing it over again, and they do it over and over and over. And part of that is because, in theory, everyone wants what we're talking about. Everyone says, "Oh, that's the greatest idea ever." We can have everybody kind of talk along the lines, and we're all, you know, not siloed. And then when you get in there, it becomes siloed. So that there are a handful of teams that do it really well. Uh, the majority of the teams don't. Some of the teams, the part of that is the front office doesn't know what they don't know. So uh, I know teams that have hired off of a glossy resume and it's gone crashing to the ground. I know other teams that hire based on relationships and, and that's gone crashing to the ground. And for the teams that do it really well, it's driven from the front office. It goes from the front office to the coaches. So the coaches are actually the ones that are actually paying attention to the people in those positions to say, hey, they're gassed out, we're burning them out. Hey, they need to do more. And that's where the relationship really works the best, right? In, and that's coming from the top down. Then when we get into the sports science, rehab, athletic training, S&C, if all of those people don't speak the same language, you're dead in the water because it's just never going to work. So unless I know what my S&C uh, colleague is doing and understands, I can't walk in there and say, hey, I need this needs to happen off their program and they need to not do these three things, but I still need them to train. So taking them out and red flagging them is, is different when we're talking about injury, injury. And I could touch on that in a second, right? But then I also need sports science to understand and I also need the strength conditioning professional uh, to understand like, hey, their metrics are telling us that they're gassed out. So we all, we, we need to cut back on the, the, the performance end and then maybe I take the recovery piece and we start to add that. And then that has to go to athletic training as well. So when those work well, that's all of us sitting there in the meeting and we're triaging that person to person or, or system-wide. And there's a, there's a process in place that says, if someone's hurt, they go through this piece here. When they're done being hurt, this is what we test next. This is, tells us where they go, right? And, and we can measure, well, I mean, the problem that we have is there aren't objectives. There aren't objective data, right? And that's a big problem, especially in those higher level sports. So that kills that a lot of the time. Dropping down to college, um, depending on the college, depending on the program, depending on the resource, you know, it becomes very similar of a lot of the coaches now through what you mentioned, Eric, Long Beach University, Racket Fit, TPI, uh, they've taken these models because they went, wow, that makes a lot of sense. And that helps me figure out what our needs are as a team. So uh, I'll name the names right now. Softball-wise, UCLA is all in and on base. They were second this year. They've won multiple national championships. Sue Enquist is, one, is a very great person. Kelly is the coach now. They, have their, they had both of their trainers there. They had both of their strength and conditioning people there. Don Slott is the assistant coach there. So they've really taken that, that, that model and run with it. Uh, University of Michigan, head coach there, had his players sit through the hitting seminar. Uh, Louisville. You know, they do it down there, you know, so a lot of the coaches that have picked up on this have said, we're going to actually take responsibility, which is where the high school portion of it comes in is 
the coach is going to have to be responsible there. The coach is, or coaching staff is taking a look at the kids. And then once they see, hey, oh, wow, that's something that's not right, that's where you need to get the athletic trainer involved, or that's where you need to get the strength and conditioning professional involved, right? Those type of things. So I think we're at the coaching level, when you get to pro and you get to high school, the responsibility increases in, in the pro level. The coaches are there to drive the actual program and making sure it's going through. I know a bunch of the pro teams, they'll have their S&C crew do the testing because the coaches won't do it, which is fine. Right? Like, that's fine as long as someone's doing it, right? At the high school level, it falls more on the coaching staff to be responsible to, to get that done. So I think that's kind of what I see mainly um, when you start to look at it from the tier down. Now, going into the approach of TPI, on base, you know, racket, whatever it is, the idea is that there's got to be a driver of that car, and that's usually the coach. And that has to be able to, to read the dials in the car, and we say this in seminars, and figure out what that car needs. And, and that's the biggest thing. I think when you have that in place and you start to understand that, it becomes a lot easier to, to kind of vet the system and, and get the people where they need to go. High school-wise, the resources aren't there, but that's where if you're a coach or if you're a clinician or if you're a gym, you go and do what we just talked about. You go make relationships, you go vet them, and you start to say, hey, we'll offer you know, your team a training package. They can come see us twice a week at our facility. You know, I'll screen them out for baseball. I'm doing the screen that you guys are doing. That way I can tell you, hey, Johnny doesn't have torso rotation and we're really working on that. So if he's taken a thousand swings of batting practice, that's probably why his back's hurt, right? So I think those are the, those are the relationships and the way that system will work. Or to, to answer your question, it's the way I see those systems working. Man, I, the key point you said is there, that rapport and trust. I just had this yesterday with a different kid who came in and he's dealing with an issue and he said, you know, but I talked to my trainer and I tell him that I'm working with you. And he said, oh, well, just do whatever Eric, whatever Eric says. Right. And, and because I trust him because he has that, you know, and I've had situations where, you know, the, the, the doctor has been the one to say, look, ultimately you should clear them because you see them like at, at game speed. So, you know, just because they're, they're weight bearing and um, pain free in the clinic doesn't mean that I feel that they can go out and play a lacrosse game. But that's that's more rare than it is common, unfortunately. So and like you said, there aren't a lot of objectives so in terms of return to play. Like what's the green light? Right. Yeah, so discussion last week with uh, the infamous Robert J. Butler uh, over at the St. Louis Cardinals. So Rob and I were in a discussion about some things, and you know when you start looking at what's it, if 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 the person's in rehab, right? That means they're hurt. If they're in rehab, I have to build a program that gets them out of rehab. So my first step of that program is to get them back into SNC, period, right? It's, it, it's simple. Then I have to say, all right, let, let, I have to let SNC do their thing, but now I have to work with SNC and say, well, when are we gonna get, get them back on the ice? Cause that's step two of that building, right? So step one is get them back to SNC. Step two is when do they get back on ice, on turf, on field, whatever that means. And then we do, then we we work as a team to go fun fun uh, functionally. What's their or what's their capacity level to be able to get back to full participation, right? So I think there's a three step process there. The first process on my end is get you back to the gym. Second process is work with them to figure out what we're going to do, how we're going to regulate, how many sprints they do. That goes back to the kid you mentioned earlier with the hip pain, Eric. Right? It's hey, coach, I need him to do half the work the other kids are doing right now. Right. And then if the kid has paid, if the kid's pain free at half the work and that works out for a week, you know, OK, cool. Now we go to three quarters of the work and it's because you're then preparing them to be able to meet the demand as opposed to what did you do to prepare to meet the demand? Nothing. Or you just went and did it. Right. So so that's a huge piece of, of and that's how my mind in that process works. Um, my first step is get you out of pain, you try and improve dysfunction, get you to essence. Once we're there, then we go, when do we get you back on field? At what capacity do you do that? And then when do we get back to the game? And there's tons of testing out there to do that, right? And, and you know, I, I don't have to say name and names to test, but there are tests that work and there are tests that don't, right? We've been using in physical therapy world, the, 
one leg hop for distance for ACLs and measuring that, and it's been studied. Well, how many people get hurt doing that? I know a lot of them, right? So is it, can we measure the one hop and land on both and get an idea of what that is? Correct. Can we start to do that and expand it as we go further once we get those metrics? Yes. And I'll even bring that back further to in, in, the, in, the, in the strength conditioning world, right? So if that kid's going back to play football or, or Mike, that, that person's going back to, to MMA, right? I'll, I'll throw this to Perry because it's a little bit, football's kind of is its own little thing, right? So that kid who's hurt is going back to MMA. How strong does he have to be to fight? Just to, it, it depends on the athlete, but there are some, it's strong enough and that is individualized for sure. What, right, what does that mean? Well, just, I mean, I do have specific metrics, but it means that's for all I them. Hear. That's all I wanted to hear. That's it. That was perfect, right? So you have an objective metric that mm -hmm. you defined and said, this person needs to meet that metric to get to that level to go back. That doesn't Absolutely. happen. It's, it's non-existent. Like if I asked a ton of the professional baseball strength conditioning coaches, and I have, and I've been in the clinic and, and we've had some really interesting discussions, like really interesting discussions, you know, organizationally wide, right? So how strong does he have to be to play baseball? Say, well, he's there, he's strong. He, we give him the program. I go, all right, so how strong does he have to be? How do you know he's strong? Because we provide the program. I still don't get the answer. <laughs> right? Like, I get it. You program their offseason, but how strong does it? So does that mean that they need to hang clean 400 pounds three times to be strong enough to play baseball? Because in my mind, you're probably gassing them out in the gym and you're taking off from the baseball field. And, and that's a big standard that hasn't happened. And I know Mike, just coming from the strong first world, if you're going to do the bodyweight class, what are the standards? Yeah. You got to be able to do a, you know, a pistol squat. You got to be able to do a one-arm one leg push-up. You got to be able to show strict pull-ups. I mean, there's, there's, and, and let me tell you, the, you know those why? aren't easy. Right. You know why? Because that gets somebody to prepare to take that test. hundred percent. Because if you're not prepared to take the test, you fail it. So yep. in the rehab world, if I get you back to the gym, the next step is to prepare you get back to the field. Well, why are there no standards? I, I, I can't understand why I have to ask the question all the time, right? There's no, there, uh, well, we like to see the guy bench 400. That's what he needs to play football. That's what they need to play baseball. And based on what? Exactly. 100%. So those are the, I mean, that's how my brain, and you guys know this, but that's how my brain works. So you, you can't just feed me information and expect me to go, oh, okay. Like it's. Well, we, you know, it's funny though, even, even, in the, the strength and conditioning world, not even talking about bridging that, that, that sort of gap from rehab. We see it all the time. My 10 year old needs to get faster. For, why? Like, like, what do you mean? Compared to what? Compared to a 14 year old kid? Like right. you, that's, that's apples and oranges. You see this all the time. And, and I, I think the biggest issue is there are, there are no standards and people just because, you know, get them as strong as possible. Well, that works in powerlifting. What does that mean? But, but, but that's it. But that's like in powerlifting, it's great. It's like we have a, a goal, like lift that thing as heavy as possible. Deadlift, you get your one RM. But then it's always, I, and this comes down to experience. As a strength and conditioning coach, you need to know where that, that, that level of is, are we overreaching or are we pushing? Because I, I already, I can tell with my athletes, hey, if we try to, you know, bring this up anymore, it's going to be detrimental and it's going to pull away. So we need to focus on maintaining that and developing other qualities. And it's really about developing that GPP, that well-rounded athlete and trying to make them as durable as possible. So the main trend is positive adaptations throughout their camp or their season. So I heard minimum effective dose in that statement, basically, yes. right? That's where we have to start, which no one starts there. The other thing that you just said that was really important that I don't think people realize is the reason that the athletes, whoever they may be, are so special at the highest level is they have a superpower of some sorts. That might be their vertical force is better than everybody else's. It might be their lat, their, their horizontal force is better than everybody. It might be theirs, whatever that may be. What tends to happen is most people will go ahead and try and bring up the weakness so much that they actually bring down the superpower, which mm -hmm. is to what your point, which is basically what you just said, right? I'm going to go so far after what you're not doing, what I think is up to speed. I'm going to let you get worse at what you're really, really better than everybody at instead of training that can even get better. And that's a huge mistake, right? 
And then when you go back to the scenario, especially in youth sports, and that's where the majority of the people that are going to listen to this and are going to see are in that youth world or in the high school world, right? You know, my, my 10 year old needs to get faster. Well, your 10 year old's nervous system doesn't even know how to connect its upper body and lower body yet. <laughs> like, like if you start to look at the, if you look at the start the growth development piece and, and Greg does a great job at the juniors program, right? It's not till like you're 12 or 14 where you even have your core even knows how to stabilize itself. So you got a 10 year old that you think is slow that doesn't, that might be biologically 10, but physiologically they're eight and a half. You can't train that kid the same way. So until you start looking at those things, I like, the, and I get the parents, it's like, hey guys, the, the, the college scholarship's not gonna go out today. <laughs> I hate to tell you that, right? And your kid's 10. So I'm trying to develop spatial awareness. I'm trying to develop kind of change of direction and having them start to do things and just get their body prepared because they don't know where they are in space yet. Like, I don't, I don't like, did you check the kid's peak height growth velocity to see whether they are like, no, like then don't, then don't bring that to my table unless you have that information. And so we keep get, circling back to this thing of standards. And so what's ruminating in my head as we go through it, we keep applying this to our standards for rehab, but you know, one of the buzzwords that you'll get, you know, it, you know, uh, a lot of gasoline on the fire on Twitter or any of these things in our world is injury prevention, but really isn't, isn't just good training with standards and, and checkpoints, injury prevention, right? It's the same thing to say, I, I need to make sure you at least meet these cut points for strength, for movement, for capacity. Yeah. And that's really how yeah. we, and I, I can't stop like Mike, you know, you have, you have two worlds that you really spend a lot of your time in. One of them is, is MMA. Like, so, you know, what are you going to tell a guy who got arm barred, got a shoulder dislocated? Don't let that happen again. Like he didn't yeah. want that to happen. You know what I mean? Feel, but, yeah. then you, but you also do a lot with soccer where, you know, you have a non-contact ACL where a kid planted and just blew out their ACL. That's very self. That's something that you can totally prevent. And the statistics show it. If you just have good sound training and you have markers that you make sure you hit. And so um, kind of as we, we start to wind down, um, you know, what is the, what is the main things, I guess, that we can take away in terms of creating that bridge and creating those standards that we both can have that communication line. And, and that, um, if I'm listening to this, say, you know what, right now I need to make sure I have, you know, on my side of things, everything buttoned up for standards and then. I also need to know what language do I go into the, the PT down the street to, to build that bridge? Yeah. So, I mean, I smell a part two coming, but that's just me, but whatever. Uh, I mean, we could talk about this stuff all day and it's, it's just because it's, I think it's simple concepts that aren't boxed correctly and, pr and put out there correctly that it's, it's continually just destroyed. Now, when you say injury reduction or injury prevention, I struggle with that, especially from the medical world, because there's not really a prevention model, because if there was, you wouldn't have, it's like over a quarter million or something kids a year tear ACLs or re-tear. There's one in four is a re-tear rate or something like that. So there, the stats out there are astounding that I don't know how much we can say as preventative um, injury prevention model. However, I think there's a physical foundation model that put in place with standards significantly can help reduce that patellofemoral pain syndrome, which may lead to an ACL repair uh, on that end of it. I, I, that I can see, I, know, I mean, I know with the motor control screen that actually has uh, an injury predictable metric on it. And that's been researched. It's been researched a couple of times. So I know that's the closest thing we have to a predictive model uh, in that regard, I, 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 there may be other ones out there. I don't know. Uh, but I think if to, to, you, to where you're going with this, I think this is where you're going with this, is if I'm a coach of an 11-year-old travel team and I need to find, and I think that this team is good and I think that, you know, I know what I'm doing in the team model of the skill of sport. Not enough people are looking out and saying, what do I do to keep the physical capabilities of these kids intact? I think that's kind of what you're, what you're, what you're saying, right? So as the coach, my job is to go and find the professional that has the ability to do that that's better than me at it. If I coach the skill piece, that's great. I want to do the mechanics, which is fine. 
But if I'm going to, and this goes back to what we already talked about, if I'm the coach, now I need to kind of educate myself on that. And that's kind of, if, if, I were, if we're talking about the sport of baseball, that's, you know, go through the on-base education or softball, something, whatever. And then now I can go vet people that have had some education in this, that now we speak the same language. And I say, let me see what you're doing. Hey, and now that's up to the coaching to be a little bit of an astute person to be able to do that, right? And then that fitness professional, as, as if you're one of the fitness professionals listening, your job becomes find standards, find movement standards, find strength standards, find power standards. You know, I don't think you're going to go hang clean or power clean an 11-year-old. But if you start to take broad jump, you start looking at how these kids can broad jump, you start looking at, hey, what are their times for running these? Start your own metrics. And if there's kids that are way above and way below, you know, and there's a mean in there, you're going, okay, well, that kid may be special or that kid might need help. You know, so there's, there's a lot of things you can look at by just setting up standardized movement, um, standardized, you know, power, standardized strength. Like TPI, they do medicine ball throws with kids, right? Like we're looking at angular velocities of 11-year-olds throwing a baseball and swinging a bat. The angular velocity numbers are very similar to Major League Baseball numbers. The problem is they don't have the force behind it. So that's just way different, right? The speeds are the same. So these kids are accelerating and moving at the same speeds. They just don't have the force behind it. They don't know where they are in space. So, you know, that's kind of where I would, I would say with, to Eric, to your point of that the coach has to have knowledge of getting someone in there to do the job they can't do. And then as that fitness professional set up metrics to be able to start tracking things. You know, I don't need to be specific on what they are. You're the professional. Vet those out yourself and say, hey, there's there's literally behind this. This is a good thing for me to look at their movement. This is a good thing for me to make you look at their strength. And then, and then you compare it against the, the other 10-year-olds. Compare it against the, the norms, right? You can look all these things up on certain places. I think that's kind of the answer to your question in a, in a circular but circling back kind of way. Well, and to pounce on the injury prevention thing one more time is where we can prevent injuries is we can save ourselves from doing dumb shit to people, right? So yeah, by having the, by, by having those metrics, so it's kind of like the, the, you know, the expression I use when I teach is say, look, we can't prevent injuries, but I can prevent me from injuring you. Like people say, oh, well, you can, you know, you're getting injured, you can go out and get hit by a bus tomorrow. Yeah, but I'm not the one pushing you in front of the bus, right? So by having that metric, I can make sure that I'm not the skill coach making my kid throw 150 pitches at a tournament in a full day. I'm also not a strength coach to know that this kid can't, can't even touch his toes, yet I have them doing power cleans on the first day. So injury prevention is, is preventing me from injuring you, right? Preventing us from doing dumb things because we don't have those standards or metrics. We just, you know, kind of pick things out of a hat because they look cool or we saw it on Instagram. For sure. And so... Oh, sorry, Mike. Go ahead. You're, you're, yeah. I was just going to say, I think one of the biggest issues in youth sports is parents and coaches are more concerned with the outcome of the team or the season and not the outcome of the athlete's health. Thousand percent. I, yeah. I have, I've literally had kids in clinic. I'm going back. I'm going back probably 10, 12 years, if not further. 12 year old kid, you know, comes in for UCL rehab and basically is like, yeah, I don't really care, you know, what we do because if it, doesn't work i'm gonna to get tommy john i'm gonna throw harder yeah i'm just astounded and that's part of <laughs> falling it's they think it's rookie of the year yeah <laughs> yeah henry rowergarder for sure right but unfortunately they now heard that because when you know pitcher x comes back from that they're like oh he's throwing harder like, dude you're 12 you had a, a ligament like put back in your elbow you know, and I, I always tell people there's a cost of doing business. Now, when I work with the, the, the pro guys, it's like, do you want to take four or five months and fix this? Or do you want to go ahead and really like get ready for battle and then sign a $200 million contract? They're like, I'll take the $200 million contract. And then I'll have the ankle fusion later. And when I'm 50, like, cool, man, cool. Like at 12, that's a different conversation. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's yeah. a cost of doing business. That, that's, yeah. that's problematic for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I was with the Giants, we had one of our star players the year we went to the Super Bowl. He'd come in and, you know, after practice to see me, he said, look, I'm not going in the training room. He goes, I know what's going on my shoulder. They've already diagnosed this. I can lift my arm to maybe chest height. 
but I got to play Sunday. Is there anything you can do to help? And we would do a bunch of stuff. And by the time he walked out, he was arm up overhead, pain-free, felt great. And by Monday morning, he was back to that again. But, you know, we were heading into the playoffs and he's like, I need whatever we can do to patch it together. That's not the, the you know, it, I wasn't going against any ethics of, I, everybody was on board in terms of what his medical thing was, but they knew he's going to play Sunday, whether, whether uh, we decide or not. So I just have to do the best to make sure he can handle that. That's a very different decision than the the 12-year-old kid. So is in season and so is in season and out of season. I mean, those that's what you're talking like in season, you're managing that, you know, Eric, your your son just went in, you know, college, like his senior year of baseball. He, he wasn't gonna play. Yeah. Like exactly. No. So as a, if I'm his trainer, I'm like, hey man, I'm talking to you as a parent and I'm I'm talking to I'm talking to him and I'm saying, look. I'm going to do my best to get you to play and get you through the season period. Like in the off season, you need to take time off to fix that. That's just a, that's a different story. But when you're talking 10, 12 year olds, it's like, Hey, like that's enough. Like, does this kid want to play high school? Right. Like, yeah. like that type of stuff. So, yeah, I actually, I have that conversation when I do, when I have somebody in for their first assessment and I say, listen, the, 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 there's a few things here. And one of them is I need as much communication as possible. Something doesn't feel right. You need to let me know. And that way we can address it. I said, if it's the fourth quarter of your state championship game, I'm on the sideline and you come over to me and you're like, Eric, my shoulders feel great. I'm going to be like, you know what? We'll talk about it tomorrow. Go back in there and deal with it. <laughs> but if it's, it, if it's on it. but exactly. But if it, it's not, it, we're in an air conditioned room and it's in the middle of August, you're not, not going to play anything meaningful for another couple months. So if you, something's bugging you, you need to let me know. And so um, as you said, Aunt, we can we could go, you know, that's a whole nother conversation of the communication piece. And especially in sports, like you're talking about with soccer, where there's not as much contact air collision as there is in, say, football. And so the, the insidious things that was once a tweak turn into a strain, turn into now all of a sudden, now I'm shut down for the year and having that communication tool and, and being able to communicate that early and having the athlete trust the people they're going to communicate that to and that they're not going to be pigeonholed or thought of as soft or, or any of those things. That's, you know, that's a whole nother conversation too. Certainly is. I mean, a lot of this stuff, I mean, we could talk metrics, we could talk, I would love to theorize it, you know, but the, the biggest thing is, you know, in that conversation that we had, uh, minimum effective dose. Like, let, let's just everyone on the everyone on the, the the podcast link. Let's just start there. Like, let's just start there, right? You know, and you know, Eric, you said something about a kid who can't touch his toes. That you know, we're gonna power clean. Like, part of the, some of the times, if they're in that certain growth phase, like you want to do power and speed training with them, but you want to do it safely. And you want to know where they're at. Is that a mobility problem? Or are they in that window? So there's a lot of there's a lot of wiggle room when we start to get into the nooks and crannies of the stuff. And, you know, anybody that's here at uh, you know PPD or anyone that's gone through some continuing education, I, I appreciate that because now you're at least starting to understand and think about it. And I think that was one of the power things about uh, when we did the, you know, the I'll call it the alpha class because I don't like the beta class when you guys were, you know, it was the alpha class when we set it up in North Jersey before you, you know, before you brought um, uh, principles of program design out you know, live, uh, one of the things that I love that you and Mike talked about was stuff that people don't mention. You said Brighton scale. It's like, oh, the care group, the, the kid's hypermobile. Well, is it a true hypermobility? Or is it just the fact that they have a mobility problem and the shoulder pops out the only way it moves? Those are two totally different things. Right? Like, so in that world, when you're in that, you know, in the fitness world, it's, you know, getting education and starting to see, you know, what else is out there and, and figuring out, hey, there's a different way to look at this than just strength, speed, power, programming. I mean, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of other stuff out there that's, that you can really find. So I really like that portion of it. That was the only portion of the class I liked. How about that? Yeah, the, re the rest was trash. I can't. Right. I can't. I, can't that was just, I think that was. That was the part that I taught. I think the rest, yeah. you know, was, was the Gotti. So yeah, yeah. yeah, pretty much. So uh, can't thank you enough, buddy. It's, it's always a, pl a pleasure there, Faison. Now, we always usually ask in podcasts, like, hey, where can people find you? But um, other than selling ice cream <laughs> down the shore or bartending bar uh, or any email. other wild I adventures. Are you, I oh, got an email. email. Look at you. I have All an right. email. You got email. Yes. I have, an, I have an email. So. Uh, it's VIP system info 
at gmail.com. So my LLC is Vitisse Integrated Performance System LLC. So VIP system info at gmail.com. That is my kind of work email. And I, I, I tend to answer that when I can. I suck at technology. So <laughs> that I got my schedule right now with all the other stuff going on is wild. So if you email me, I will get back to you at some point. I promise you. I just don't know when. <laughs> well, he may suck at tech, but I, I can I can say this and 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 all joking aside, he's he's and I've come across a lot of him. He's he's maybe if not one of the most talented physical therapists that I've ever come across. Like in terms of being well well versed in like like if I had an issue, I'm making a two and a half hour drive to see Anthony, you know, and driving past a lot of other PTs to do that. And so uh, it is it has been a great gift having you on. So I appreciate um, that. Another one in the books, Barry. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And this has been your Principles of Performance podcast, episode number six. Thanks for having me on, guys.